1: For the first time in our history, we're facing three historic crises all at the same time. We're facing the worst pandemic in a hundred years, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, and the most powerful collective calls in a generation for racial justice. My dear friend and African-American Ronita Johnson has been most gracious with her time and talent to lead several groups this summer in candid conversation about racism. I've been part of several of these groups as we converse along the divide of race and culture. Today, we will be endeavoring to have a forthright deep sharing between the two of us about what we've learned, what continues to scare us, and our hope for the future. Instead of hosting, I will be participating equally in this deep dialogue with Ronita Johnson. Ronita Johnson has worked at the intersection of DEI, which stands for Diversity, Equality, Inclusion and has been convening Sacred Circle for over 30 years. She cut her teeth in the corporate world as a first diversity manager in a large corporate organization in the 80s. Skilled in the practice of dialogue, she creates safe spaces of listening, learning, and self-reflection to bring conscious that which lies in shadow. In 2010, after a successful diversity consulting career, Ronita retired to devote all her energies to convening circles. She hosts online and in-person circle gatherings, organic in nature, and focused on authentic conversations toward excavating truth around life-giving topics that matter. She, along with me, are founding conveners of the Millionth Circle, She is also an original convener of Women Eradicating Racism and convener facilitator of Becoming Anti-Racist. She's the author of Coming to Forgiveness, A Daughter's Story of Race, Rage, and Religion, and created and acted in a one-woman show, Forgivable, Join us for the next hour as we converse candidly with one another on the subject of racism and how to become an anti racist with our guest, Ronita Johnson. I'm Justine Willis Toms. I'll be joining Ronita as a participant in this conversation. I'm speaking with Ronita from her home by remote connection. Welcome to New Dimensions. Ronita, welcome.
2: Well, hello, Justine. How are you doing today?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm a little nervous. Uh, As you know, I've spoken to you before about this, and you've been so kind and welcoming. And I just want to thank you for all the time that you are giving to this very profound conversation that is going on, not only like between us, but it's going on all over the country this generation is really focusing like it never has before so let's just launch
2: into it uh, Ronita what um well before you do that I want to thank you Justine for agreeing uh, to have a conversation you are the expert you're usually interviewing the person that's written the book the person you've invited and um I feel it's really important to model um, what having a conversation can be can be uh, between people of different races. Um, this is not a conversation that we usually have, and and when I suggested it, you just said yes, and and so I, I also want to thank you for the opportunity because we're practicing. You know, we're practicing what this conversation could look like and we hope, and hope that we can be a model for others that are, are joining in the listening audience today.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for that acknowledgement. I just know that when, as I said, that I've been participating in several of the circles that you've been facilitating. And one of those circles is a very mixed circle of white and African-American women. And then the other circle is predominantly white, except for you and one other uh, person who is of Japanese uh, ethnic background. And so, so as we're talking in these groups it, it's kind of scary and not only kind of it is scary. I like as a white person I'm afraid I'm gonna say the wrong thing and if I bring up something is it gonna be politically incorrect and or am I going to offend and what you have set up uh Ronita is a safe container where we are beginning Uh, Well, with one of the circles we've been together for over 20 years. So we know one another, we trust and respect one another. So that's already in the field. The other circle that I'm participating in that you are helping to facilitate some of us have not ever been together, so it's there's noobies. a little more newbies, newbies. <laughs> so there's a little more tension there. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great challenge for us to widen that circle of diversity and to speak uh, candidly, or to learn to speak candidly is what I'm, I'm thinking. So, so with me. That has been my hesitation that I might say the wrong thing or say it incorrectly. So do you have any comment on that?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, let's go back to the circle that we've been in for almost 20 years. As you've noticed, um, there's still some hesitation in that circle. We've had relationship. We've been talking about everything for a very long time. And even there, there is this hesitation to be honest about one's experiences, one's history, one's background, one's attention when it comes to the subject of of race and what it means to be white, what what privilege means. So um, this has unfortunately kept the subject in the closet. So we see the difficulty and the and the wondering if I'm going to say the wrong thing in a circle that's been together almost twenty years. So then you look at this new circle, and there's even more walking on eggshells. Um, but here's here's the thing, um, the time has come. We have to talk about it. I mean, you know, uh, putting it in the closet doesn't. Uh, help the problem to go away. In fact, the problem has gotten worse. Uh, I think we're in many ways in worse shape than we've been in a very long time. And we see what's happening right now in Wisconsin with the shooting of Jacob Blake, and you know, and then the vigilantes who there was people with guns and they killed two people last night and. We know that if that had been a black man with a gun or black man with guns, they would probably all be now in the moor. So we see right there the unequal treatment, the privilege that some people get and other people don't get. So we have to talk about this because we we have to um, realize that there's different treatment for different people, depending on what they look like and depending on our race. So we have to talk about this because it's not going to go away like magic. There's no magic act here. There's no pull, There's no pulling the rabbit out of the hat. We have to grapple with this. It's not easy. It's painful. And you mentioned uh, creating um, a safe environment. That doesn't mean that it's going to be comfortable. I think I, what happens is that Um, people, particularly white people, because they've never really talked about this, they want to be safe and comfortable. What I um, offer, what I invite is safe, respectable. That doesn't mean it's not going to be comfortable. I mean, in fact, it's probably going to be uncomfortable because you know that feeling you get in your gut when something is true and you know that perhaps you participated in that. You get that burning feeling in your stomach, in your gut, like somebody just punched you. And um, there are lots of punches around this conversation that are present and are coming. But we can uh, endure them. They're not going to kill us. We're not going to die yeah. Yeah. from doing the work, from having the conversations, Bernita. The uh,
1: what opened me to the conversation in the first place—that really, really opened my eyes. Uh, although I have seen through news media, let's say going back to Eric Garner when he was saying, I can't breathe and and he died with a policeman on his neck and that was awful and I felt great empathy. But it wasn't until George Floyd and when, when I saw the um, police officer Uh, the image of his knee on that man's neck for over six minutes. But it was the police officer's attitude, his body language. He had his hands in his pockets and he was looking out of the crowd in what, what has been described by some as deliberate indifference. This kind of nonchalant, well, I'm above... I'm impunity the mm-hmm. above the law. I'm mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen to me. I this man isn't worth anything, and and even the cops around him didn't go to really help, and people were screaming at him, and people were saying, "Get off of his neck," and and so forth and so on, and that that image of really letting. Letting it into my being how how a police officer could be so callous and just sit there and murder this guy in front of all of us. That changed everything for me, Ronita. It took me be into a, a new landscape that I can no longer... Uh, unsee so to speak and and we'll talk more about that in just a moment but I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Ronita Johnson and we are talking about how to become an anti-racist and if you want to know about her work and all that she's doing you can go to her website it's called embraced by circle.com embrace with an ed e m b r a c e d embraced by circle.com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org the boat goes to the bottom to the bottom the boat goes to the bottom and people don't care standing in the middle of the boat goes to the bottom to the bottom The boat goes to the bottom And nobody reacts, the captain shouts Clear our deck, we sing like a stone But you don't care, stand in the middle The boat goes to the bottom To the bottom
2: The boat goes to the bottom Yeah! The boat goes to the bottom To the bottom The boat goes to the bottom
0: Nobody
1: reacts, the captain oh, shoves me on a black jacket and sings by the but yeah, you don't yeah. care. Standing in the middle of the boat goes to the bottom. To the bottom, the boat goes to the bottom. The to the bottom. I'm here with Ronita Johnson, and she is an African American, and I'm a white woman, and we are having a conversation about racism. And I just uh, said how my eyes were open and how I started to say, okay, I'm going to jump in here and learn more. And, oh, my gosh, I, I every day I'm watching a video or reading a book or doing a podcast or doing a YouTube or, I mean, or watching the news. Every day I'm just collecting more and more information. But what I'm noticing is it is endless. The 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 uh issue is so huge and so multifaceted. It's not like, oh, okay, just there are a few racist people and they do terrible things and they belong to the KKK and and I would never do that. But that doesn't I'm learning that does not take me off the hook as a white woman. And that's kind of no. where I am. No, it
2: doesn't. I mean, I think um When, first of all, let's go back to George Floyd. If there had not been a video available to record what happened to him, George Floyd would have been murdered in vain. This happens all the time, the murdering of of Black men in this country. Uh, It would have happened and no one would have said anything about it, Um, but because it was recorded, the whole nation got to see him treated worse than an animal. I had two friends from the South originally, two white friends, and they told me that they were hunters and that, that putting the knee on the neck was the way that they would drain the life out of deer to make sure that they were dead. And so when I think about that, it just even strikes me more that we're not human beings. We're treated like animals. And we were treated like animals during the time of slavery. But the sad thing about it is that it took this act of murder on the television for people to wake up that this happens all the time to Black and Brown people. So, do we have to have a video to prove that it's happening? What about all the times where there is no video? Where is the consciousness of the United States, the consciousness of America, when there is no video? And think about all the unvideoed killings, shootings. That have happened in this country. Um, I think that's the most startling thing for me that it took this murder on TV, not on a, a um, not on a, a television program, but in real life, in living color. It took that to wake people up. So there's been this silence, this complicity that uh, has happened across the board and this shook people up it shook them up and i'm just hoping that um people going to go back to sleep was talking to uh i'm i'm doing some research with younger younger um white children like 18 19 young people and i was talking to one the other day and and i and i asked her about what happened when she saw the george floyd murder and she said that She and all of her friends were just so impacted by it. And I said, do you see She protested. I said, do you see that uh, movement continuing? And she said, no, it's quieting down now, and everybody's focused on the election. So what's happening is this seesaw kind of response that we go up when something like a murder or Jacob Blake happens. Brianna Taylor, we go up on the we get excited. there's a protest, there's a loud voice really being upset and angry and and how could this happen? And then it dies down on the other side of the seesaw and it's quiet until another one happens. So my inquiry is, what is it going to take America? for us to stay with this until we have reduced, actually ended racism in this country? What is it going to take for us to stay woke? That's the question I have. Well, you know,
1: uh, Ranita in, in some of the studies I've been doing, um, there is that Abram Kendi book on how to be, and anti-racist. And one of the things that he pointed out in the book was when you look at the history of all of this and you go back to 1619 to and then, I mean, it's over 400 years, you know, that we yeah. that this has been an issue in this country. And uh, he talks about the different milestones that have happened, like uh, eighteen sixty-five. You know, the ending of slavery, the Thirteenth Amendment, and uh, then other, you know, voting rights amendments. And and then in the sixties, uh, more more legislation was passed for uh, to for integration, and it. Um, but what that doesn't point out is all that's happening in between. It's like, okay, the Thirteenth Amendment passed, and so therefore slavery is over. And and you had us, uh, you suggested that we all watch the movie Thirteen, yeah. and and I had no idea that in that. And here's what it says. I've written this down. It says in in the US Constitution it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So this is saying, hey, okay, there's no slavery, but If you get caught with a crime, you give up your rights as a citizen. And then we all know, as we've all gone through and started to look at things, we see about the pipeline of incarceration, the way Blacks are pulled over constantly in in the stop and frisk and, you know, all of these things that make it... This this whole like profit-making prisons are voracious in their appetite. Yeah. Just yeah. voracious. And if Black people are an easy target for, for law enforcement,
2: I guess. I It is true. Um, first of all, Black men are five times more likely to be in prison than their white counterparts. Five times. But in the 18 to 19-year-old group, they are 13 times more likely to be in prison. 13 times more. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, what is that all about? You think about marijuana use um, between Black and and white people. Um, Black people are 3.65 times more likely to be arrested for possession charges and uh, we know that fatal killings for uh, every 1 million people are 30 black versus 12 white. I mean, this is rampant. This is, it, you know, the population versus the prison, you've got 60% white folks, 30% in prison, in terms of the black population, you have twelve percent of the population, but thirty two point nine percent of the prison population is black. So it's three times the the black population. I mean blacks make up the majority of suspects arrested and charged with violent crimes, murder, robbery. And if you take everything into account, there's still so much disparity. So you have to wonder. You know, what is this about? What is
1: this about? You know, I'm getting, the. I I was wondering, as I've researched this, Ronita, there's a a phrase that pops up often that says, precious resources are being drained by the systemic, uh, in these communities of color, by systemic racism and i was i was wondering okay what are those resources and you just named a major one and the resource of a young healthy black male this is this is a promise of the future of a That's whole right. community. This is, I, I, I'm just feeling it in my body, Ronita, right now. I'm feeling such sadness for these young men, and for the community that is bereft
2: of their right. their uh, potential. And it starts young. You start young. So think about the the public school system. You heard this term, school to prison pipeline. So there are alarming numbers of uh, black and brown children that are funneled directly and indirectly from school and to the prison industrial complex. And that's what contributes so much to mass incarceration. Uh, And it starts in elementary school when kids are just being kids and They might act up, but if you have a teacher or you have an administration that doesn't understand where that kid came from, let's say they didn't have anything to eat that day. We know what that does to uh, from a physiological perspective to the body. You may not be able to sit still. Your stomach is growling because you're hungry. You might be thirsty. Who knows? You might have some health issues going on in your body. You go to school. You you don't sit there straight, you're fidgety, who knows what that, that kid might be doing. And rather than the teacher understanding their own biases, understanding kids and how kids develop and grow, particularly kids that come from underprivileged environments, send a ticket to the office about this kid's behavior. And that starts it. I mean, I, I actually have a friend whose kid was uh tagged from the beginning to the end. And he ended up in jail. Good little kid. I knew him, but he just, his self-esteem was broken. And I think at some point he said, it's better for me to act out. And I know what's going to happen to me anyway, but there is this repetitiveness, you know, they get, they get suspended from school. And then at that point they have a record And then there's the bias from the teacher, the bias from the school administrator. There's not resources in the school to support that kid, maybe with a a sociologist or a a psychologist to talk to the kid and find out what's going on. And before you know it, you've got a kid in in the juvenile um, detention and it goes from there. It does. I'm here with Ronita
1: Johnson. She's an African American, and I'm a white woman, and we are sitting here trying to have a, a, a well. For me, sometimes it feels like an uncomfortable conversation <laughs> on racism. Uh, although I'm, I'm sure it's it's uncomfortable for everyone around. I wish we didn't have to have it. I want to remind our listeners you're listening to New Dimensions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Renita, we're talking about racism. And one of the things that I've learned recently, uh, I was watching, I think, last night, one of W. Camus Bell's, uh, he does a a series on television called Shades of America. And I highly recommend it. He Mm -hmm. is very, very good. In this one, he took us to New Orleans and he took us to the Ninth Ward, I had no idea about this and what happened here. He pointed out and was interviewing someone who was living there at the time during Katrina. And what they did was uh, just to let people know the facts of this. They took like 2,000 people out of that particular community of the Ninth Ward and they bust them out of the area. Now, this area did not even flood in Katrina. There the, there was the fourth ward, I think, was the one that flooded. But the ninth ward did not flood. All these people were busts out. Then while they were gone, they... Tore down level they tore down all the uh, affordable housing they tore down schools they tore down businesses they level they took bulldozers and they leveled it and then what they would do this is called gentrification Mm -hmm. of an area what they're doing is that they want to build more you know expensive housing the tax structure started to change and people who were living there couldn't even afford to stay in the houses that were still standing and i think going back to what you were saying about this about the young men and young people the point that really got to me was uh that there were no examples within the community anymore for these young people to aspire to, to 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 be entrepreneurs to see black businesses thriving and 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 growing and to have a cohesive community that that was just broken apart totally broken apart and uh, Again, I feel this in the pit of my stomach. This is wrong. This the thing
2: about the, the thing about this is let's take a city in I know all about New Orleans, so my family is from down there and I and I um talk to people who still live there and they are moving on. Um, Black and brown people out, they had when they, when they left. This was in mine, I believe. And there, there was no protection, I believe, for the people in now what they're calling those primal neighborhoods. And uh, when it flooded there, I think there was some foresight. If anything ever happened, it would be the opportunity to change the complexity. Um, all New Orleans in terms of having more of one group and less of another group and they took advantage of Katrina in a way that just displaced people and then where did they go and they don't want them back they do not want them back but let's say if that happened in a town in the US where there were all brown and black people and there was a section of white people and a storm came and the people decided to tear down the buildings that those white people lived in. What do you think would happen? <laughs> I mean, I, I I keep I keep wondering how why don't white people put the shoe on the other foot? You know, we hear that walk in my shoes. Walk in my shoes, because frankly, Justine, I don't know why we are so hated. I I um I was listening to um, a really heartfelt sharing this morning um, about what happened with Jacob Blake and the killings last night. And uh, what was being said is that um, as brown and black people, we love this country, but this country doesn't love us. So I saw another clip the other day that talked about our history. We washed your clothes. We took care of your babies. We plowed your field. We we cooked for you. We, we were raped by you. We had your children. Why do you hate us so much? Why do you hate us so much? And I don't have the answer to that, but, but that's always kind of spinning around in my head about where does this hatred come from? Where do you think it comes from? As a white woman in the United States, we're around the same age. I know we have this history, but why do you think there is so much hatred toward black and brown people? Why are we such a threat?
1: Uh, That's such a profound question, Ronita, and I'm trying to dig deep into my own life to understand when i became aware of black people in the first place when they when when black people entered my consciousness and i think for me it wasn't like hatred it was just I wasn't paying attention. I—it's I, like I was looking at my own navel, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, you know? Yeah. Just like okay, it wasn't affecting me until it did start to affect me, and I'm starting. And it's taking me. It's for me. It's not so much hate, and I think that this hate really comes from a a a feeling of um self-interest
2: mm-hmm. you
1: know that that it's yeah. it's like if 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 you're going to take away from my uh, economic well-being in some way or 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 Which there's no
2: evidence of by no the way.
1: evidence whatsoever <laughs> but m- more than that for for me it's been um kind of out of sight out of mind uh, you yeah. know uh, that it, it didn't affect me until now. I'm realizing it does affect me. It affects this whole country. It's affecting us right this very. Go to Kenosha. Is it affecting yeah. Kenosha? Right, Johnson. Right, right now, yeah. you bet. And it, yeah. this this is happening over and over and over now. So I, there's an uh, there's an unquietness now. Uh, that is up in the culture. And I pray, it is my prayer, Ronita, that this isn't just a moment, but it's it, it's a continued sustained momentum for addressing this finally after
2: 400 years. Yeah, mine too. I think what you're pointing to is that, wow, I have always um, known I mean, I can go back to um, the first time I realized that I was different. Uh, We moved to the South in 1953 after living in San Francisco for almost five and a half years. And I met Jim Crow head on. I think the second day I was in Louisiana, northern Louisiana by making a mistake of going to the water fountain, not understanding as a six-year-old that there was any different. And it, and it went from there. You, you, you know my story of uh, the cross being burned on our lawn and my dad ran for school board, them not knowing that he was a, a black man and. I mean, so many uh, moments like that. that you and when, and when they found out that he was a black man, that's yeah, when. They found out. Yeah. yeah, they found out he was a black man because he went and he got the application and the person didn't realize he was a black man. And when they found out, um, all hell broke out. And I mean, to the, the time of when we moved here to my home and. We're sitting outside looking at the final stages of it, and we're sitting there. My husband and I are sitting there talking, and here comes the police car, and and I said to my husband, I knew it. He, I said, watch. That policeman is going to come and park behind the car, and he did, and he got out the car, and, and um, my husband said, because you know my husband knows what to do because he's a, a, a more brown-skinned, darker-skinned black man though the color of your skin doesn't matter in terms of your tones. Uh, and and he said, what's the problem, officer? And he said, well, uh, I need to see your driving license and your registration. And he went back, he came back and uh, he said, what are you all doing here? And all the time my husband's like uh, telling me, don't say anything, don't say anything. To me. Oh, I know. Go to jail. <laughs> it was a scary time. And I was so upset because I knew exactly what was happening. And and the officer said, we got a phone call that there were some funny looking people in the neighborhood. And I said, funny looking, funny looking. And he looked at us. And 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 when we told him that we were looking at our house, we could tell that he was very embarrassed by it. And not, so I finished it. He said, OK, well, all right. And I said, well, it's good to know that we're moving into a city that if we see any funny looking people, we can call the police department and you'll come running up here. And yeah, I didn't think I was going to have to deal with that when I moved to my neighborhood. And I share with you that right now, I, I'm i not uh, always uh, feeling safe when I walk around this neighborhood. But the, but the point is, white people never have to think about what it's like to be white. They never have to think about, they never have to worry about safety. You know, they just, they just don't. Um, I mean, all of the privilege that is given to white people just because they're white. And I think the point that that we keep making as black and brown people is that being white doesn't mean that you haven't had your share of uh, experiences that were hard. I think sometimes when we talk about privilege and we talk about what it's like to be white and white people say, oh, I've had a hard time too. We're not talking about that. We're saying that your race wasn't one of the difficulties, wasn't one of the hardships that you had to endure. Where for black and brown people, race is always a hardship. And what that's like to carry that around with you 24-7. I never know from going to bed at night to waking up in the morning, to going to bed at night, to waking up in the morning, what's going to happen around issues of race. White people don't have to do that? And think about the trauma that that causes day in, day out, day in, day out. The trauma that that causes in your body that you have to try to learn how to deal with through, you know, meditation and other forms of taking care of yourself. I'm here with Ronita
1: Johnson as she's an African-American woman and I'm a white woman. And we're talking about anti-racism or racism, uh, the systemic uh, policies in our country that uh, controls and uh, exacerbates racism. If you want to know more about our work, you can go to our website. It's embracedbycircle.com. Embracedbycircle.com. or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. <speaking in Spanish> Matineta per la
2: prata Encontré el héroe señor Que cantaba sola la rama
1: I'm here with Ronita Johnson, an African American woman, and uh, I'm speaking with her as a white woman, and we're talking about becoming an anti-racist. And um, let's let's talk about because this is this whole conversation is about how I can, as a privileged, as someone who's grown up in privilege, uh, and has not been concerned with being pulled over by the cops for the color of my skin or, or my children to be stopped on the street uh, uh, by law enforcement on a regular basis. Uh, how can I and all of us become better allies to, to people of color and, and in this case to black people?
2: Uh, Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Justine. Um, First of all, I looked at that word ally recently, and it comes from the Latin word to bind. So from there, it's about acting together and protecting one another and joining together. There is an incredible, right now, an incredible amount of um, information on um, the internet You can uh, Google search how to become an ally, but I'm going to talk about just a few things. I think the most important, one of the most important books of our time is uh, how to become an anti-racist, Kendi's book. I think it's remarkable. It illuminated me in ways that I didn't understand that even people of color can be Uh, I never thought about myself as a racist person because I thought it was about power, but he goes into detail about that. So I would say the first thing is become an anti-racist, which means that you're not speaking from a place of neutrality when you say uh, non-racist. You have to say anti-racist because that's an active word. It means you're not endorsing any kind of racial hierarchy or any kind of racial uh, inequality. Understand, you talked about understanding where you came from. You gotta understand your indoctrination, your socialization process. It is amazing to me how many white people don't know any black people, don't know any brown people, have never been around a black or brown people. And in the school system today, they are more segregated now than they, than they have been in our history. And so that lets me know that there is a moving away from integration and a moving towards segregation. So the less people that you know that are different than you around uh, racial uh, differences, the less you're going to know about them and the more suspicion that you might have about them. So you've got to do your work. Find out how your, your socialization has uh, biased your opinion, has created stereotypes within you, has caused you to discriminate. And talk to your children, talk to your loved ones, talk to your people that you work with, talk to the people in your community if you're in any kind of religious or spiritual community, talk about what that means among yourselves so that you get some idea and perspective about who you are around this, this issue. And understanding that words matter because they help us interpret the world. Um, They help us to think and they help us to act. But, it's not just words. It's not just doing your work from the place of understanding your socialization and understanding how you were raised. You, the next part of this is that you got to act, you know, which means um, voting locally for um, any kind of policies or uh, ideas or systems that are anti-creating uh, equality for all get into schools and see what are some of the processes and procedures that keep black and brown children in a racist environment. Bear witness. So when you see uh, behavior that you feel is not uh, coming from an anti-racist perspective, be willing to speak up and say something. You know, White white people are scared to be courageous. White people are because their friends may not like it. They get ostracized. We get ostracized all the time, but we keep going. Uh, support uh, people of color-owned businesses. I mean, there's a tendency that um, white people only go to white people for their businesses. But come on, now there's some there are some reputable businesses owned by people of color. Support. Financially, there's the ACLU, the Equal Justice Initiative, GLAD, the Color of Change, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Native American Rights Fund, the Asian American Advancing Justice. There's so many uh, organizations that you can donate money to. I mean, some of these protesters that are out here fighting on the lines, they're going to jail. They need bail money. I mean, there's a place where if you don't want to get, you know, get out there and Protest is a way to support the protesters, push for police reform. Um, We know that so much money has been poured into police departments, but even police say that they don't have the training or the time to deal with some of the issues that are out there. And if these young students and uh, in other situations like mental health and uh, domestic violence, if we had trained professionals, to support that, it would free the police up so that they could be dealing with only violent crimes and not following around black and brown people. But I think the number one thing is that we have to have to, the the most important thing is that we have to have this chisel away attitude. I have to believe, I have to have hope, I have to have hope and faith that we can chisel away at this one chisel at a time. And that We have you partnering with us, partnering with us. And think about that word partnership, that we're collaborating and that we're co-creating the future together. You know, we have a vision that we can be one people and that we chisel away at all those policies and practices and ideas that do not support us in creating the kind of America that we all want, we all desire, and we all deserve. I deserve to be as safe in this country as you or any other person. All brown and black people deserve, as American citizens, to feel safe. All brown and black people deserve an equal opportunity. They deserve fairness. They deserve equity. They deserve to be treated as a human being and treated like themselves and not have to assimilate because of the culture that we've been born into. We've been born into this, but that doesn't mean we have to stay here. That doesn't mean we have to wallow in this. We have the ability to change it if we want to. John Lewis talked about a a good trouble. I just love that. Good trouble. He said, if you see a wrong, be willing to speak up. Don't be silent. Don't be complacent. I think if we all took that on as a personal vow, all of us believing hand in hand that we want to create a just society, I believe we could do it, but there hasn't been the momentum. There hasn't been the tenacity to keep going. I appreciate all that you're saying. And I'm
1: thinking as you're saying it, that as we have these conversations, one of the things that's opened up for me is that I realize in the past, I have looked for validation from uh black people, that I'm okay, that I'm not a racist because Mm -hmm. I taught in an all-black school in Alabama, so therefore I'm not a racist. But what I found is, wait a minute, I am not off the hook. That's not what you're talking about. What you're talking about is that I need to not be defensive about my own situation of privilege. And I can say with, uh, a, deg- with, with, <sighs> Well the word it's hard for me to say it. You can feel it getting stuck in my <laughs> throat. <laughs> I, Justin, I am a racist. <laughs> I I have to it say, say it <laughs> I have to say it before I can even start to talk about how I can be yeah. anti racist. Yeah. So yeah, and you could yeah. feel it was sticking yeah. in my throat, Romina, even now, yeah. as comfortable as I feel with you and well with all of our listeners yeah that that we have to really face that as people of privilege and have these conversations and i 'm so sorry that our time is so short here to really display the conversation and its fullness in which we are having, but we 're both encouraging everyone to seek out these conversations. You will be so happy if you do so and you will feel that you're truly making a difference and you're finding out a lot about yourself and others um
2: so i want to thank you so much ronita oh, for thank you justine for for uh, having me um i am i'm, I'm dedicating my life uh, to creating spaces for this conversation Um, I can't see uh, any better way to spend whatever time I have left on this earth. So I thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to us continuing to break down those barriers and take that ladder one ring at a time.
1: Yes, may it be so. I've been speaking with Ronita Johnson. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Embraced. By circle.com, embrace E M B R A C E D. Embraced by Circle.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3709.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.